Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends. I am John O'Leary, and I'm so happy to have you here joining me in the Live Inspired movement. As you know now, on every Live Inspired podcast episode, we have amazing guests join us to share their story, their successes, their failures, their lessons. Ultimately, they're sharing their lives. More importantly, though, than their lives, you, my friends, are going to hear real ideas, mindset shifts, and actions to apply in your own life. Now, before we get started, you ought to be checking us out through our social media, through Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn and all the other social channels. You can learn more about my work, our inspiration, the impact that we are having in our movement by checking out the work at JohnO'LearyInspires.com. Again, that's JohnO'LearyInspires.com. Today is going to be a special day. I, I, I am super excited to uh, bring in a new friend, a new guest, a new community member into your lives. His name is Matt Immersion. Matt has a terrific story. It's one that he's going to be sharing with us on the podcast. But, but in short, Matt was going down one version of what he viewed as success after graduating college. As he continued to climb this ladder, though, he got to a point where he realized that the ladder was leaning against the wrong wall. Matt realized this at a young age, but I think the good news is today is from his story, we can realize where our ladder is, what the foundation of that ladder is, what it's leaning up against, and how profoundly our lives matter. Because that's the story you're going to hear loud and clear today from our new friend, Matt Immersion. So my friends, my invitation to you right now is buckle up, open up your minds and your hearts and your journal. You'll want to be taking notes on this one as we bring in a new friend. Matt Immersion, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Thank you, my friend. Uh, I'm inspired already just listening to your introduction. So uh, thank you for the, the kind intro and the kind words. Uh, I'm honored to be here, be your guest. Well, man, you're, you're a, a game changer, not only as a guest, but as a human being. And uh, my colleagues at my office are the first ones who introduced me to your story. And we started taking notice of the work you're doing and the similarities in so many regards on what we try to do. You're having a huge ripple effect, and yet I, I would imagine a few of our listeners may not know you, they may not know your work, your brand, or your name. So for a few of those folks out there who don't yet know you, tell us a little bit about your story today. What are you up to? Yeah, so, I mean, you know, my story is, it's, you know, I think in a lot of ways, it's a story, and part of the reason why you and I, we, you know, we met recently and we really connected so much is, you know, I, I had no idea that my story from my life was going to roll out the way that it did. Um, and, and I also had many, many years when I just didn't think that my, there was going to be a happy ending to my story. Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, you know, one of the things that I love so much about some, one of the things that you said is you get asked the question, if you had a choice to never have lit that piece of cardboard, would you have not lit it or blown it out before it hit the gas can? Mm. And your answer is no, I wouldn't have. 
And, and that to me is just such a beautiful, powerful moment. And, you know, I wasn't burned on, you know, 98% of my body, hundred percent of my body, but I did go through a period of time where I thought of taking my own life because I just didn't feel like I mattered. And I didn't know what the plan was for my life. And to be here now with someone like you, um, talking about these topics, you know, 15 years later from kind of my dark days, uh, I just, I never had that as part of my plan for my life. And to think that this thing that was so hard has become such a big blessing for so many people. It's just, you know, it's a, it's a head scratcher. It has to be hugely head scratching and, and you're touching lot like tens and hundreds of thousands of lives now through this story, through the ripple effect of, of your dark days, man. It's, it's an incredible story. It's one that we're going to be unpacking during this podcast. And I asked you before we started recording, hey, man, when people hear you speak or write or even on podcasts, what do you hope they hear? And, and you said, dude, I hope, I hope they realize their life matters. And in a culture yeah. that posts so frequently how great life is, the reality is when we come off social media, frequently we feel even less positive about our lives and the fact that we do matter than before we stepped on. So I, I want to hear your story today, but I want to back into it by you telling us, Matt, a little bit about your childhood. Where, where, where'd you grow up? What were your parents like? What was your upbringing like? Yeah, so I grew up in a the, in the small town called Modesto, California. I was actually born in La Jolla, San Diego, um, but my father worked for Gallo Winery, and that moved us to Modesto, uh, where they're, they're headquartered. And, you know, Modesto was a small town. It was a farm town. Uh, it was very simple living. We didn't have a ball. Um, you know, we had to drive, you know, an hour and a half to go to the Bay Area for things like that. And so, you know, we we played in orchards and we swam in canals and, and it was very basic, you know, living. Um, I think, though, for me, uh, and you can ask my parents about this, I have the most amazing parents. I mean, I've just won the lottery. They are the sweetest people ever. But my mom wanted four boys. Um, mm-hmm. my, older, my older brother, his name is Mike. And then I was number two. And after me, they said, that's it. And they said, <laughs> if I was the first, I'd probably be an only because I was a handful for sure. How, how many years separated you and your brother? We're two and a half years uh, apart. And are you different people? Oh, my. Um, well, you know, we're the same heart. And my brother is the sweetest, kindest, most loving person I've ever known. Um, but personality wise, you know, he's more introverted. Um, you know, I joke in my family that he was the golden child and, um, you know, straight A's, then Stanford undergrad, UCLA medical school, UC Davis residency, chief of medicine for Kaiser, um, you know, married two kids, brand new home, two labradoodles, no cavities. It's like his residency is pretty ridiculous. Yeah. We would not, I would not like your brother. I like you much more already. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) I like you more than him too. Um, (laughs) But, uh. But, you know, this, the, the, the sweet part of it all was that I excelled in other areas like being more social in sports, athletics, and, you know, student governments and things. And we always have this amazing respect for each other. Yes. And I think there, there's an admiration that we have for one another. Still to this day, um, there's an admiration that we have that, that, you know, he is an amazing brother. No question. You mentioned that you played the lottery in utero and uh, you won with with mom and dad. So talk to me a little bit about your dad. What was your father like? 
Well, my father, you know, we're Armenian, uh, 100% Armenian. They're both Armenian. And so with that comes a real work ethic. Um, there's a real commitment to to rolling up your sleeves and 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 not about necessarily doing overly overly well, but at least providing for your family and and your community. And, and so my father, uh, he worked for Gallo for 47 years, mm-hmm. the same company. He's a very loyal man. And he, he traveled a lot when we were younger, but then um, more and more he, he traveled less. And then in his last years at Gallo, when he was going to retire, they said, listen, Ron, instead of retiring, what would you like to do here? And he said, I would like to lead the effort to get Gallo Winery more connected to the community. Mm-hmm. And so he started an entire division of Gallo that was just completely focused on community relations and, and community building. Um, and the thing, the impact that he had through that, I think at one point he was on over 30 nonprofit boards. Um, he, he is just the kindest, most generous man. Everyone who meets my father, like wants to hug him and, and wishes that he was their father. Mm. Tell me a story that kind of, uh, what, what, what's the story that symbolizes and represents your dad for you, though? So that, that's something he did for others. What was he like uh, as a kid, man? When, when you looked up to, to your dad, what kind of stuff did he do with or for you? I think one of the biggest things about my father, if my father taught me anything, it was how to be, I think, generous of your heart, um, but also be stay level and consistent in your character. My dad is always so steady. Like you, you never question what you're going to get from my father and he's always going to be honest, but very sweet and, and, and and very loving. So he really like, he walked the line of being, you know, a disciplinarian, if you will, or like letting you know the difference between right and wrong, but, but not in a way that, was it all like going to break your child's spirit? Mm, and that's that, a delicate that's what I appreciate. balance. Very, very delicate balance. And he, he always handled it beautifully. Like if we did something wrong, it wasn't you're grounded for two weeks. It was, so son, let's talk about this. Like there's a reason why I didn't think that you should do it, but, but, but why did you think you should? Right. And, and he had this way of really, you were a team. And, and you worked through these things together. It was never heavy-handed. Tell me about your mom. Oh man, my mom is is is, is truly you know one of the angels on earth. Um, she is the bu- busiest woman who never worked a day of her life <laughs> since the day my brother and I were born. Right. And and but her work is all about relationships. Uh, she loves to talk on the phone, which I get from her. She's extremely extroverted, which I get from her. And she is just that person that looks for opportunities to step in and to be of service. Um, she cooks more meals for people who are going through a family illness or they've lost something or having a hard time. Uh, she is just that person uh, who is always going to step into into that fold where, where she can serve others and, and in a very kind of mom kind of way and where my dad is helping to build the Gallo community center to bring arts and performing arts to, to the community. My mom is cooking meals for the neighbor. <laughs> and both matter. 
and they both matter absolutely you know what i mean and we're going to get there as we progress forward but it's really what your whole life and community focuses on today whether it's the macro or the micro it matters profoundly yeah and 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 the beautiful part about them to me is um you know, and recently I launched a new website myself, and, and the theme of the website, the brand is called Good for Goodness's Sake. And I really just learned that from my mom and dad. They do good be, just for goodness's sake, for no other reason. They don't want the attention. Um, they just do it because that's what they believe we're supposed to do. And and the word good, if I use one word to describe, like my mom and dad, is so, such a simple word, but it's just good. <laughs> You mentioned you're athletic and extroverted and president of Stuco. As a young guy, you're extremely successful and you are climbing the ladder of success. To kind of breeze us through high school and college and into graduate school and beyond, Matt. Yeah, you know, it's funny because I don't know that I ever really had, uh, I don't know I had a plan or I didn't really, I never connected with myself. I, I feel in some ways I lived a very kind of Forrest Gump kind of life. Uh, I just always woke up with a smile and I just loved people and I would just go through my day and just being me. And I don't really even know what that was mm. uh, as naive as that sounds. Uh, and so where I found myself excelling was in everything that had to do with people and teams. So uh, in student body, you know, in high school, uh, you know, president, all these sorts of things or government and, you know, I was friends with my teachers. I, I excelled in sports. I played soccer at a very young age. And then I went over to Germany to play soccer on a, uh, on a team over there. And I, I ended up blowing my knee out, which led to two knee surgeries, which then led to me watching water polo in high school uh, and thinking, wow, maybe I could play that sport. Mm-hmm. It kind of looks like soccer, but you're in the pool. So I started playing water polo. Next thing you know, I excelled at that, and I was recruited to play for UCLA. So, you know, I was a kid who never even heard of a thing called a recruiting trip. And so when the captain of the UCLA water polo team called me and said, this is Alex Rousseau, we'd like to fly you down for a recruiting trip, I thought it was my best friend pulling a prank because I never even knew those yes. things existed. I was, I was that naive, I think, to it. And next thing you know, I'm on a plane flying to L.A., and meeting the captain team sitting next to John Wooden at a basketball game. And I'm realizing, wow, like this is actually a big deal here going on. Yes. That was a pretty big name yeah. drop right there, by the way. Yeah. And the sad part is, honestly, John, I didn't even know who John Wooden was right? until I was sitting next to him. As, bar- as embarrassing as that sounds, it's the truth. You go to UCLA, you play water polo, you, you thrive on campus. Uh, Take us forward from there. Yeah, I loved I loved my college year. I mean, you know, I think about playing sports for UCLA or for any college for that matter. Um, and the only way I can describe it is, it feels like maybe it's like one percent of what it might feel to put on the, the uniform that like, can be in the military to serve your country. There's something so special about wearing that uniform, and for me, it was for my school. And representing that you know that's university against other schools, mm-hmm. and, and so it always felt very natural, very comfortable. It was hard, I, you know, when you're you're playing sports at that level, and we won a cu- couple national championships. Uh, you know, you're pulling the best players from around the country from their high school teams 
and all of a sudden now you're you're playing against each other every day and and you know I didn't swim my entire life so I I was no longer the shining star in the pool I was having to fight even to get playing time and and that's not easy to have to process coming out of a a big fish in a small pond and now you're kind of a small fish in a really big mm-hmm. ocean in in, in LA um, but it's the same thing. That's the thing about water polo that I think is so unique is a lot of people never even heard of water polo. Very few people even go to the games, really. Mm-hmm. And yet you're up at 5 in the morning. You're getting in the pool. You're working out harder, arguably, than any other sport that's out there. Uh, and and it's really not for the show or the dough. I'll tell you that. Right. There's something a little bit crazy about it because you're working so hard and it kind of just flies under the radar, but it means the world to you. You know, I out of any sport, Matt, I, I think water polo may be the most violent in some regards and almost certainly the most difficult to play. I mean, when you're resting, like this is when you're chilling, you're dog paddling. So, like, the best case scenario is you're still swimming. I, I, I really don't know how you guys play the entire game as competitively and as quickly and as rawly as you do. What was the motivation behind it? How did you guys keep getting up early in the morning to practice and hopping on the bus to, the, to take those games? You know, I, 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 I don't know. I look back on it, and, and I, I really question how I even did it, you know, because we can't touch the bottom of the pool. You're right the pool's too deep. So you're constantly egg beatering and having to stay afloat. You know, there is something about water polo players that I've noticed because a lot of my friends from, from school, the majority of them have gone on to do amazing things with their lives. And it was, if I, if I could give a motto for my teammates, it was work hard, play hard. Mm -hmm. And, and that's just how they, that's how they live. I mean, it's, it's kind of sad to say, but when I was at UCLA, uh, our water polo team had the highest GPA of any other sports team at UCLA. At the same time, we had the most failed drug tests than any other, than any other team at UCLA. Clearly a connection so, there somehow. Yeah, exactly. Right. They worked hard. They played hard. Right. And, and they just, it's part of that spirit, I think, that you get in you, and that's what that's what takes you through it. You know, and the camaraderie, you know, you've obviously spent a lot of time, you know, I know with the St. Louis Cardinals and, you know, sports and the Buck family, and that locker room, it's just, it's special. And, and, and my teammates are my closest friends from college more than, you know, anyone else that I met, more than my fraternity brothers, more than anything. It's, it's those going to battle with your with your buddies and and it becomes addictive and you want to win for you, for your school and for them and it's just a special thing to be a part of Matt you you currently it's very hard for any of us to feel sorry for you you have a high GPA you're on a full ride you're on the water polo team you're a good-looking guy you've never failed at anything you're about to get an incredible job you're a senior vice president for a, an incredible label uh, as you said in your own words, I heard a TED talk you gave. You're on top of the heap, baby. You are on top of the heap. Uh, I feel no pity for you, man. But tell me why I should, because you start realizing that this is not exactly the the, the heap you'd hope to be on top of. What 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 changes? Yeah, well, well. So my years after college, uh, you know, everything seemed to be going well as well. Uh, uh, you know, I. 
I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up. It was definitely a, a theme to those years, but I was happy. And, and I always had this, again, there's almost like this forest gumping, like, you know what? Life is beautiful. Life is going to work out. I, I just, I don't even worry about it. Um, but I went through a period right after college where I went through a bunch of different jobs. I sold candy for M&M Mars for a year and a half or two years. I taught kindergarten. I started a swim lessons company. Um, I became an EMT for one day because on my ride along, it was the grossest thing I've ever seen in my <laughs> life. And I quit after my first day. Um, there were a lot of father-son conversations through those years. Trust me, John. Okay. It wasn't always easy. <laughs> um and, and truthfully, when I applied to go to business school, so, um, you know, to get my master's in business at UCLA as well, the large reason why I did it was I just needed to buy more time because I was getting impatient with myself. I think my, my parents were getting impatient with me. Like, what is this kid going to do with his life? Mm-hmm. And so going back to business school and getting my MBA was really that in some ways trying to just find something new and different that I hadn't seen yet. And you know, when I got done with business school, it was just really in this place where they prepare you to go out and get a better job. And, you know, that's now I have my MBA. Now I can garner a higher you know, salary and more responsibility. The challenge for me was that I was not feeling like that corporate structure was where I could drive. Mm. And I still felt different. And even in business school, you know, we did like the Myers-Briggs personality tests and these sorts of things. And everyone was in the far left, like, you know, super yes. anal, you know, analytical, all that stuff. I was to the far right, like feeler, you know, this whole thing. And so even during business school, I felt like I didn't belong there, but I still had I committed to it. So I was going to finish it. And then all of a sudden, an opportunity came to me after school was finished that I just could never imagine happening. And my best friend was in a band, signed to Sony Records. John Paul Jones from Led Zeppelin just produced their album. And they were looking for a new manager. And um, they sat me down and said, listen, we, we want you to be that person. We want you to manage our band. And I said, yes. And I turned down any other offer that I had out of business school and became a band manager in Los Angeles with a master's in business from the Anderson School of Management. Man. I mean, from EMT and kindergarten teaching, water polo playing, now you're managing bands. But you, <laughs> but when you and I talked to you earlier, you enjoyed it. I mean, it was good, fun work, and you're having, in some regards, the time of your life. I was. Uh, it was absolutely the time of life. We were having a blast. My office was basically the Sunset Strip. You know, and I, you know, booking shows, the Viper Room and the Whiskey and the Rainbow Room and and trying to help artists truly live their dreams. And so I was passionate about the work. I I loved the creative side of it. Uh, To this day, some of my my most enjoyable moments in life were being inside a recording studio and listening, listening to a drummer lay down drum tracks or listening to a singer lay down harmonies on his lead vocal or her lead vocal and counter harmonies and just to see this art. Mm unfold that I, I don't have a musical bone in my body. And so I was always enamored by it. And, but with that also came other things, you know, with that became Matt was starting to define what it meant to be successful. You know, Matt was starting to, to find out how does Matt feel good about himself? Because all these things he had school before he had water polo, he had all these things where he did thrive 
And now he's out in the real world and he's trying to figure out, you know, who is Matt today. And unfortunately for me, that is where probably the unhealthiness of my journey kind of started. You know, over the weekend, I visited with an old friend who uh, is a pastor and he was talking about the American paradox, which is we have more of everything more connections mm-hmm. online, more money than we can imagine, more stuff in, in, that we're in possession of, more opportunities than we can fathom, and really more safety than we've ever had before. And yet we feel yep. more at risk. We feel less connected. We feel less fulfilled. We feel less at peace. We feel less in love than at any time before. So there's this odd yep. paradox going on right now, and it's one that I'm sensing you you, you were wrestling with. Absolutely. You know, um, it's the old American dream, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, my wife and I recently got back to Costa Rica, and we met these families that live in these fishing, fishing villages and cinder block homes, and they have nothing, but they have so much joy and love and peace, and they moved us deeply, and they made us seriously question these exact topics you just mentioned. Like, what are we doing? Like, mm. This is not this is not our best version of being human. Like, we're we're messing this up. But so for me. You know, I wanted to go out and prove I was a success. You know, all my friends took jobs with major investment banks, you know, dot-coms, all this stuff. I chose to be a band manager, and I wanted to show that I could be successful. I wanted to prove myself and prove others. Even my mom and dad, you know, maybe my dad more, that, that I, I, could, I could do well. Um, I ended up getting hired by Robert Kardashian. So this is years back and this is most of America and the world knew Robert Kardashian because of the OJ Simpson case. But what most people didn't know was that Robert was really no longer a practicing attorney. Uh, He was a music man and he stopped practicing law in the early seventies before the OJ trial, but he and OJ were really good friends. And so when he saw OJ in the white Bronco, Robert said, what's going on? How can I help? So he found himself in a hole whirlwind of of what that trial was, not really intending for that to be the case at all. Mm -hmm. Uh, But Robert owned a music marketing company, and he had basically had contracts with all the record labels, and he would help to promote their artists. And whether it was DVD promotions, concert promotions, um, you know, radio, you know, music promotions. And so the thought that I had was if I could somehow meet Robert Kardashian, which I don't really know why I thought I could meet him other than we were both Armenian. Um, <laughs> if I could meet him... By the way, that's maybe... enough. From what I understand, you are Armenians. I, my old physician, <laughs> Vachia Vajin, was Armenian, and Ed Barashirian uh, out in Los Angeles is a friend of mine, and he's Armenian. You, you, it's a tight community, so there is some truth behind that. There is some truth behind that. I, I'm not quite that Armenian because I'm third generation, so a lot of times people don't like that. I don't speak the language and stuff, but you're right. It is a tight knit group for sure. And so I ended up getting a meeting with Robert and uh, I brought a couple artists with me on CDs because my thought was kind of like in baseball, like a farm league kind of thing. Like if I could bring artists to Robert and he could help farm them to the record labels, that would be my system for getting bands record deals. And that's kind of how I saw this working. Um, unfortunately, he didn't like any of the artists that I brought with me, but he did like me, and he offered me a job as a senior vice president of his company uh, on the spot. And I said yes, of course. I said yes. I couldn't believe that was happening. And so at that point, my life started to really change because instead of only working with you know 
bands on the ver or trying to make it you know make it or have a career now i'm working on projects with some of the biggest artists in the world and i'm finding myself in places like in limousines with salman rushdie and <laughs> celebrities and uh, going to the u2 concert to to you know find me standing there holding bono's son <laughs> and i'm in the middle of times square with avril lavigne realizing I didn't get proper permits and we shut down all of Times Square. And I'm from Modesto, California, back to where we started. And when you go from Modesto, California to those environments, it's a pretty big shift. And, and the truth is when I come home for Thanksgiving or Easter or Christmas to see my family, like everyone wanted to hear my stories because they were exciting. They were fun. And so my definition of success kind of became, make a lot of money, hang out with really well-known, popular, celebrity, famous people, um, have a lot of fun, um, be single and date a lot. And this kind of became, you know, what I thought the definition of success was. And, you know, I don't say this proudly, but if I look back on it, I was successful. Mm-hmm. Matt, when... That definition. The definition changes, though. Well, you know, in the introduction, I uh, I kind of warmed the water a little bit for our friends listening to say you were climbing the ladder, you were nearing the top, and then as you looked out, you realized, dang, dude, it's against the wrong wall. W- when did you begin to realize this is just not working for me? You know, I, I don't think I ever realized it till till my big breakdown, um, which I, I guess I'll get to. But um, looking back, there were moments where I find myself. You know, because Kim and Chloe and Courtney Kardashian, they all ran, worked in the office as well. So their friends would come to the office, and all of a sudden, you know, there are these big celebrities in the office, and then you find yourself at at, at fancy dinners, and then after parties, and after after parties, and and pool parties on the weekends and things. And all, there were moments where I'm like, this doesn't feel right to me anymore. Like I would look across the pool, and there's all these guys who were older than they should be to be hanging out at pool parties, trying to pick up on models. And all of a sudden I started like, this doesn't feel like home for me, but it's all I knew. And it's what I had done for, for so many years that I didn't, I didn't know how to get out of it. Really. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on a Monday morning, uh, I was, I woke up in the morning to get ready for work. And in that moment of tying my shoes, all of a sudden my life changed and I had a hard time breathing. I started sweating. Um, my chest got tight. And in that moment, I thought I started having a heart attack. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, I was, I was beyond scared. I was 31 years old at the time and I was healthy or so I thought, and all I thought to do was just run out my front door and I just started running down my street. And I don't know why I thought that was what I should do. And I ended up then jumping in my car and driving myself to the doctor, which you shouldn't drive a car if you think you're having a heart right. attack. Um, but I was an EMT for one day, so I thought I was <laughs> right. <old> enough. <laughs> you knew what you were doing. It's all it's safe. You you were in good hands with you. Exactly. It was my Starsky and Hutch moment, you know, with the <laughs> right. siren on top of the car. Uh Anyways, they did tests on my heart, and what we learned was that I was not having a heart attack, but I was having a very severe panic attack. And I, up to that point, I didn't know 
what I never heard of panic attacks. I didn't know what anxiety was. Um, I never heard of things like Xanax, which now might as well be one of our new vitamins in our culture. Mm-hmm. And I was exposed now to this new world called anxiety and depression. And um, the doctor said that if I just went home and rested, I should feel better shortly. But my panic attack turned into, you know, many, many years of battling depression and anxiety. And they were very dark, dark, hard years. And Matt, you know, for me, I think rather than spending a whole lot of time in the dark years, that, by the way, yeah. almost all of us, when we're honest about it, have spent either decades in or hours in. And uh, in that moment, there's no difference, right? Whether it's just yeah. a, a glancing moment or it's our third decade in it. I'm curious, how did you begin pivoting from the, the bleakness and the darkness and the meaning, meaninglessness of it all into hope and opportunity, a next step, and eventually even what you're doing today? But how how did you make that radical pivot? Well, necessity is very compelling, right? Yes. <laughs> I, uh, it, you know what? It, it wasn't just me. It was the help of people. And uh, my mom and dad, the love that they poured onto me, they even came down to L.A. and moved in with me. Um, a, a family friend who had heard about a therapist and thought that maybe this therapist could help me and I mean, honestly, like this therapist, I, I really truly believe like she saved my life. And I joke, I call her my expensive friend now. <laughs> and um, I think I paid for all their kids' college education, and she saved my life. But I, I do that trade any day. Um, but it was a lot of work. It was it was understanding that I made mistakes. But one the one thing that really moment for me that I talk about a lot was one day I went to, to see Denise, my therapist, and she slid across the table the book, Purpose Driven Life. And she said, I want you to read the first sentence of this book, and uh, which is, it's not about you. And she said, until you understand it's not about you, you're never going to feel better. And I'll never forget that moment because and, and, I didn't understand that because when you're a narcissist working in a very narcissistic industry and you're thinking about taking your own life and someone says it's not about you, like all of a sudden one plus one doesn't equal two. And I'm like, I'm confused. I don't know what you're saying. And she's like, I'm going to show you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help you understand it. And basically what she did was every Saturday – I had to go out and I had to go do something that wasn't about me. So feed feed homeless people, pick up litter, paint over graffiti, read to elderly. So Saturday mornings at 9 a.m. kind of became this time for Matt to go out into the world and to live a life that wasn't about him, even though I really didn't understand why she had me doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, and for whatever reason, John, I, I'll, I, I don't know if I'll ever understand, but for whatever reason, picking up litter really became my thing. Um, I'd be out in the city. It'd be quiet. I, I got to know the Meals on Wheels drivers, the UPS drivers, the dog walkers. And it was just my time in the city just to be of service and to pick up litter. And I found so much peace in it. It's I know it sounds strange to say, but it really became my jam. <laughs> and and one day I was picking up litter and some friends called me and they said, hey, Matt, listen, we're going up to a Hollywood pool party. Why don't you come and join us? And I'm like, you know what, guys? I, I know that script. It's, hmm. it's drinking, doing drugs, objectifying women, thinking you're cool. And, and the truth is I'm not picking up litter right now and I'm totally cool, so have a good time. And, 
it was one of those moments where it's like, oh no, like I, I just outed my secret. Yeah. Because no one knew about my secret journey because I had a reputation to protect, right? Um, even though I was suffering silently. And, and in that moment, it clicked for me that this is what Denise meant by living a life that's not about you. You're actually going to end up finding yourself. And I found myself through service. And so I had this idea, like, what if I'm not the only person in the world trying to find all their purpose and significance in all the wrong places, which I knew I wasn't, especially living in Hollywood. Uh, And I got this idea then to write a book and to put basically my Saturday program into a book that other people can then also do as well without having to put someone's kids through college. Mm. (laughs) Tell me about it. What, what, What's the book called, even though I already know? Yeah, well, the book's called Every Monday Matters, mm-hmm. and it's a really simple book. Uh, it's just 52 things to do. It gives you something to do each Monday of the year to make a difference in your life or someone else's life or the environment. Um, my friends call it like it's, it's, a, it's a do-good guide for dummies type of thing. <laughs> and, and it's very easy, simple book of how to engage people um, and, and get them engaging also the world around them as well. Matt, you, you uh, I, also have a program you provide to kids, and I believe it's in 49 states and five countries, and more than a million little yeah. lives have been touched through it. Talk a little bit about the program for kids. Yeah, so let me get there really quickly. So basically, you know, it's hard to believe that the book Every Monday Matters came out 10 years ago uh, with Thomas Nelson published it, and and then over the past 10 years, Every Monday Matters um, then started becoming an organization. Uh, at first, it became a for-profit company where we were selling programs into schools and companies and things. Um, but then I, uh, about two and a half years ago, we decided to transition it to a nonprofit organization. And, and really what we do is we, we bring programs to people and to organizations to help those individuals connect to how much and why they matter, which was inspired by someone who was incarcerated that I met. Um, I'm more than happy to share that story with you. But our school program that we have, it's a, it's a curriculum that educators can use with their students to help their students connect this idea of how much they matter. And it kind of looks through the, the lenses of, of I matter, which is like, what are my gifts? What do I, where do I thrive? Where do I excel? What are my challenges? Really understanding myself, Mm -hmm. which is very much the social and emotional learning component. Then there's the you matter, Mm -hmm. which is helping kids understand how they impact those around them. Uh, You know, bullying is a huge topic in our schools today. Uh, Understanding how much you matter changes how you start to interact with, with other kids. And then there's the we matter, which is the bigger fabric um, understanding of how do we as a larger community make change on a larger level. And so these kids get to go through these curriculums based off monthly themes and weekly focuses every Monday to connect to the I matter, you matter, we matter perspectives. And it's truly life-changing for them. What are you working on next? Well, our two big things right now are the education program and also our corporate program. So we help companies um, create work cultures where people also connect this idea of I matter, you matter, and we matter. And we love that work as well. Um, 2018, some of the areas we're looking at are um, the incarcerated population mm-hmm. and also the elderly population. Um, mm, awesome. For, di- for different 
for different reasons, these populations also don't feel like they matter, but they do. And, and you know, obviously our elderly population today is isolated and depressed. And a, a great study just came out that they think that isolation is a greater risk factor for our health than obesity. Wow. Uh, and loneliness. And so we're looking at taking a program into uh, assisted living facilities across the country. Also, because I'm an author and a speaker, I've had the privilege of speaking inside of prisons and juvenile um, correctional facilities. And I meet children and I meet men and women who maybe never felt like they mattered. They were never told that they mattered. And maybe if they had known that they mattered, they wouldn't have made the choices that they made. And, and in prison, the only way they get attention is if they do something wrong and they're punished for it. So they're never told that they mattered in prison either. And I believe that these men and women and children do. And so I would love to bring a program to help our incarcerated youth and adults reconnect to how much they matter. And when they do get out, if it would just help one person not no, make no. the same mistake again and have to come back, then I think it's good work. Matt, I, I, as you know, I love it. Where, where can we learn more about this work? Yeah, so our, our nonprofit is called Every Monday Matters. Our website is everymondaymatters.org. And, you know, you can follow us on social media as well. Uh, Facebook is um, at Mond- or Mondays Matter. No, Facebook is Every Monday Matters. And then Instagram and Twitter are, are Mondays Matter, at Mondays Matter. And... You know, what what we hope is that people, you know, either through obviously being a, a donor to support us, but also just bringing Every Monday Matters into their own life and mm-hmm. to start to really just, you know, because I believe that changing the world happens from the inside out. And my vision is a world w- filled with people who understand how much they matter. And and that that's an individual transformation. And so in some ways like this personal transformation and social transformation to me kind of happen hand in hand. And, and you can't have one without the other, I believe. And, you know, it's funny for me, like I had to learn how much I mattered by actually helping other people, by serving other people. Right. Um, Some people will say, I have to learn how to love myself until I can love others. But I would say maybe through loving others, you might also learn to love yourself. Matt, I, yeah. I love your story. I love the, the the ups and the downs, and then the transformation into ultimately what a life of significance, not just success for uh, what the world thinks a success looks like. You you are Exhibit A of it, and you're teaching us what really matters. And now we're going to shift gears a little bit from your story that you've been sharing into what we call the Live Inspired Seven. The, the, these are seven questions I've had the honor of asking. Every guest that has preceded you, and hopefully all the the guests that follow. So, you're you're following in some big footsteps, man. But I I think you certainly have the the, the characteristics to continue forward. So, are you ready for question number one? I think. And dude, I I think I can fill in the blank for you. So I, okay. I, I'm going to ask you the question, but I think I know the answer. What's the all best right. book that you've ever read? <laughs> the I think the most impactful book for me probably was Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. Uh, that that book speaks very deeply to me. Um, obviously, Purpose Driven Life, although it was really the first the first line of that book that was really so profound for me. Uh, and and I'll, I'll say one that, that 
you would not have guessed, but it's a book that just opened me up so much as a kid, uh, which is Where the Red Fern Grows. Mm. And there was something about that book that really had a profound Im- impact on me. I've, I've never heard of it. Tell me just uh, quickly what, what what that book's about. It's about a little boy and his two golden retrievers. And it's just the story of love and compassion and heartbreak. And uh, it's just a sweet story. And I remember reading it as a kid that I just, it's one of the things that made me feel as deeply as I could ever remember feeling. Um, and it sounds kind of childish to even talk about that book. <laughs> so it was one of the, my favorite books. But... No, man, I, I, while people speak while I'm doing the interview, I take notes on the side and I actually underline that twice. I'm buying it. And I'm gonna I'm gonna read it not only for myself, but I I happen to have three boys. I had two golden retrievers growing up, and I have one now. So I think this is really gonna hit it home. Matt, Matt uh, tomorrow, yeah, just tomorrow, you wake up and then you discover that your wealthy uncle has shockingly died at 103. You know, no one saw this coming, leaving you with millions. What would you do with that newfound wealth? Wow. Uh, you, you know, selfishly, I, I, there are things in our life, my wife and I, that we would love. We would love to, you know, to to you know own our first home together and some things like that, just to get us kind of more stable. But then I, I think it's it all be about how I could put those dollars to use to, to have an impact on communities and have and, and people, um, you know, along the line of work that I do. That I I just want everyone to know how much they matter and why they matter and. and it would be invested into social good that helps to create that. If your house that you will buy when your uncle dies or your current apartment catches fire and your wife and all living things, all living friends and people are already out and you have an opportunity, Matt, to run in and grab one thing, just one item, what would you grab? Now, John, this is really, really weird because I was asked this question last night. Dude, that is, were we together last night? Because I don't no, know we were not anybody that asked a question that trippy. So uh, what was your answer last night, and has it changed in the last 12 hours? The reason why I was asked it, by the way, is because in California right now, there's all these fires oh. in Napa. And one of my friend's daughters had to leave their dorm room. Uh, they, they evacuated. And I was talking to her last night, and she, her daughter was on the phone and said, Hey, Matt. If that happened to you, what's one thing you would grab on your way out? Literally, this mm. happened last night. Mm. So <clears throat> I was thinking about my answer. I didn't know what to say. And my wife walked in and she said, what, what, are, you, what are you doing? I said, I'm trying to figure out this answer. She's like, oh, I know what your answer would be. It would be my whoopee. <laughs> uh, my wife still has her whoopee, her childhood <laughs> blanket that her father gave her when she was born. And he has passed away. And it's the, her treasure, treasured item in life. And it ends up somewhere near our pillows every night, bed. <laughs> and so I would grab my wife's whoopee. That is an awesome <laughs> answer. I tell your wife that you just, you just got a whole bunch of people all emotional through the whoopee. Okay. All right, if you could yeah. sit on a bench overlooking a beach and have a long conversation on a gorgeous day with anybody, Matt, living or dead, who would you want to be sitting on that bench speaking with? I would like to be sitting with Jesus and Bono. <laughs> uh, what are you? What are you guys talking about? <laughs> oh man, I, I 
I see us talking about where it went wrong and how we can change it. And when I say it, I just feel it's 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 humanity, it's culture, it's um, it's our humanness. It, I see us talking about yeah, how it went wrong and how we can fix it. Give me your guess at what you think Jesus's first response back might be. Not at where it went wrong, but hey, so how, how do we fix this? How do we fix it? What 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 do you think you're going to hear? I would imagine Jesus would say it's time for us to start loving our neighbors more. <laughs> right, a new, a new complicated commandment. Um, yes. that we somehow yes. keep forgetting. All right, well, yeah. great conversation. I, I look forward to the day where you're, you're able to have that conversation with with Bono and Jesus. Yeah, me too. <laughs> What's the best advice that you've ever received? Oh, the best advice that I've ever received. That's such a great question. Um, I think one of probably one of them is is listen first. Um, I really try to be a good listener and 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 not be thinking about other things at the same time. Just being super present as a way to to learn and also just to really honor whoever it is that I am talking to or talking with. Mm-hmm. Perfect. Great advice, by the way. What would you tell your 20-year-old self? That the road might get bumpy, um, but have faith, um, be patient, and it's okay that your story might not unfold exactly how you thought it would. Mm-hmm. The road indeed will get bumpy. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. yeah. Matt Immersion, it has been said that all great people, and I'm speaking with one today, can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like your one sentence to read? Matt Immersion lived a life that mattered. Matt Immersion, you have indeed lived a life that mattered. And one of the cool things about it is you are reminding all of us, whether we are in penitentiary, retirement homes, third grade, or business school, that so do we. That everything we do and every word we speak and, and every action we take uh, for ourselves Absolutely. and for those around us matters too. So, dude, thank you for reminding us. Thank you for living it. Thank you, man. I really appreciate it. And, and you as well, my friend. You, you. Uh, one of the biggest blessings for this life that I live today is that I get to encounter people like you, and I get to be inspired beyond anything I could have ever imagined. And and in some ways, I think that is the blessing that's given back for all the blessing that we do is we get to meet these gems of of peoples and stories that, that um, you know you're saving lives, you're changing lives as well, and. It's an honor to journey with you and now call you my friend. Well, my friend, have an awesome day. and Thanks for spending time with us. And my friends tuning in, that was my buddy, Matt Immersion. This is John O'Leary, and today is your day. Live inspired. 
Now, my friends, if you enjoyed this episode as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you, take a few moments right now, rate the show, share it with your friends, tell your ladies and gentlemen, your buddies that you worship with, you work with, you hang with, you are educated with about the Live Inspired podcast. It's been downloaded now hundreds and hundreds of thousands of times all around the United States and all around the world, but we're trying to create a ripple effect through our work. You can help. Tell your friends what's going on. Share it through social media. Put it on Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn and all your other channels. Let the world know that there is some darkness, but you matter, and the best is yet to come. So for this time and until next time, this is John O'Leary, and today is your day. Live inspired.